Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Horvitz, the founding editor of The Times of Israel, a multi-language online newspaper based in Jerusalem that was launched in 2012 and has quickly become one of the fastest-growing online news sites in the world. In addition to co-founding The Times of Israel, David has had an extensive journalistic career, including as editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and been a best-selling author and observer of Israeli culture, media, and politics. I'm grateful to speak with him as part of the Hub's ongoing Future of News series about his decision to walk away from the legacy media to found an online startup, what it means to pursue a global audience, and the practice of journalism in such a trying time for the state of Israel. David, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Pleasure, Sean. Thank you. You spent a good part of your career working for major legacy newspaper companies, including seven years as the editor-in-chief at the Jerusalem Post, which traces its history back more than 90 years. Why did you decide to leave traditional media and co-found a new online newspaper in 2012? What opportunity did you see or what problem were you trying to solve? Well, it wasn't, um, you know, I'm, I am indeed extremely elderly. I'm 61 now and I was doing journalism. That's all I've ever done. And uh, I love print media and I still love print media. In terms of, of, of moving away from it, it was um, seemed to be the smarter thing to do. Just the costs of producing a print product, especially with the, the goals of the Times of Israel, which is really to, to report Israel primarily. I mean, you rightly say we're a multi-language platform, but our, our core is in English. Um, we have a Hebrew site with a great deal of original content, and we have French, Persian, and Arabic websites, but most of the material on those last three is translated from the English, or in some cases from the Hebrew. But the, you know, the main site being an English language site in a country with a very small minority of English speakers. I mean, a few hundred thousand is still something, but the main audience is abroad. And therefore, a print product would have been very costly with a very limited local market and a very costly process of trying to get it to a, an overseas market in an era of the internet where there was really no need. You know, you can you can put it all out there online and people can get it in instantaneously. So certainly not any aversion to old style media. And in fact, a great respect for traditional journalistic values, which is a separate issue, but quite important, but just necessity and, and you know, financial common sense in terms of, of the opportunity. And, and I, you know, I, I think it's called the Times of Israel, so there can be no mistake. This is a, a website that is interested in the well-being of the state of Israel, uh, at the same time tries to do proper journalism and, you know, Israel warts and all. In the, in the belief that the more effective and independent and fair-minded journalism you have, you know, the, the better it is. Uh, and I thought there was, there was room in, the, you know, in, in, in a global market interested in Israel for a site that strove to be 
fair-minded and you know we're not perfect and we all have our preconceptions and there's no such thing as absolute objectivity etc etc but a site that would strive to be objective and would clearly differentiate between news and opinion and op-eds and blogs and so on and that if you read it you would have some real sense of where this country is going the site has has really it's it's done pretty well from the start but in the last four months since the hamas slaughter uh, in southern israel um it moved from you know a, a very resonant website you know read by people who particularly care i suppose to this um incredibly highly read sites at a time of i think you know unprecedented crisis for israel so i'd rather have lower traffic and less crisis personally we'll come david to the the growth that you've experienced in the past four months and the experience of reporting during this this trying time for the country but before we get there i want to just zero in on some of the initial assumptions behind the launch of, of the times of israel including as we've just discussed the decision early on to be a multi-language publication, as you say, it is now available in English, French, Hebrew, Arabic, and Persian. Talk about that decision and how it's come to influence the business itself and the practicalities of daily publication. Well, it didn't. It, it wasn't an immediate plan. Uh, the, in, the initial intention was to have an English website. Even, I mean, I, I again, I come from print media, and I'm, you know, an elitist. <laughs> And one of the things we did was so out of left field um, when I was developing the site with the company who who helped build it, there was there was some back and forth. I had ideas of things I wanted, but the person I was working with there at a company called RGB Media, uh, my friend Greg said we should have, you know, we should have a blogs platform. And this is, you know, 2012. It's not like it was unheard of, but uh, what you mean, like just anybody could write stuff and we'd publish it. So, well, not exactly, but people who have something to add to the conversation, clearly marked as as blogs rather than reporting and so on. That was uh, one departure that I hadn't planned. And that, by the way, was very central to the initial buzz around the site, because as you, I'm sure, would know, and, and many listeners would know, if you write a blog post, you want people to read it, and therefore you send your piece around and people hear about the, the site. We actually opened the blog platform a day before the main site, mm. and it, almost immediately, you know, people were reading it. And, you know, in retrospect, there was no guarantee that this site would be at all successful. There are lots of commendable websites that that don't make it uh, and that don't garner a readership so that was that was kind of planned so you know a proper traditional journalistic site online uh, in the best meaning of the word traditional and a blogs platform then it became you know that's i don't even remember the the dates but it was not again it was not sort of all, all together i i thought it would be very good to have an arabic site to have I mean, again, it's it. We 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 call it the Times of Israel in Arabic. We don't hide what it is, and that's probably very alienating for people who are very hostile to the very fact of Israel's existence. But I I don't want to pretend it to be for it to be anything else. So the Times of Israel Arabic, I thought it was important to have uh, again a non-partisan, clear-headed, fair-minded narrative, which we were providing in English. Well, let let it be out there in Arabic. We realized at some point that there was a great deal of interest in what's going on in Israel uh, in the French-speaking world, world, not only among French Jews, but among French speakers. And therefore, that was a pretty obvious gap where there was something that we could do. Hebrew came much later. And, and one of the, you know, being really candid with you, I've lived in Israel two-thirds of my life, or almost two-thirds of my life. and But I'm, you know, I'm very, I still follow, you know, I have to say football in England quite closely. You know, I'm, I'm very very good friends in England. And 
you know, so I'm that that mix of somebody who's most of their life in Israel, but grew up in England, and that's very central to my identity. But I also part of part of that process, I think, was the assumption that that you know Hebrew media, existing Hebrew media, was ver- was very rich, which it is, and very diverse, which it is, and there wasn't really that much that needed to be added. And then we started doing quite a lot of investigative journalism about financial abuse. Specifically, we, we have a reporter, her name is Simona Weinglass, who, who wrote a series of exposés about something called binary options, which was basically stealing people's money by pur- pur- purporting to be enabling them to make very, very, very short-term investments. And it was, uh, it was, it was theft. And it was very widespread, and it was not being reported in Israel. And it was really, I mean, when I say very widespread, I mean really very widespread, t- totally scandalous and utterly under the radar and no willingness in Israel to take it on. And no, I would say no serious, and it, 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 requ- it required seriousness. It required time and, and, and great care. It wasn't being covered. So it, it was around that point that I thought, you know, there is, there is stuff that's not done in Hebrew that should be done. And I still, to this day, don't quite understand why Hebrew media, why sole Hebrew media avoided covering it for a long time. And at the end of this process, unfortunately, it really is kind of the end when it shouldn't be. We were central to the fact that Israel passed a law outlawing the the trading in, in binary options from Israel. I say, unfortunately, the end, because a lot of the people who were involved in this um, simply moved abroad or found slightly different ways to outflank the uh, outflank the law and so on but it, but because of that it was it planted the seed that you know what I don't think there's you know a, a great big huge gap in the Hebrew market uh, and by definition it's a limited audience this is a country of 10 million people etc and there's a lot of media but I thought you know we can do some some important things in 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 Hebrew as well so that's kind of the evolution of the of the other languages Implicit in those decisions to build the Times of Israel is a multi-language outlet, is that it would see its audience as global rather than narrowly national or local. Talk about the opportunities and challenges associated with competing for global market share and how it's come to influence the Times of Israel's journalism. I mean, there are simple facts, including things like, you know, time zones. So here's this website that is that I'm speaking to from my office in Jerusalem. Almost all of our staff are in Israel. Uh, we'd like to sleep, which I don't think people <laughs> have done very much in the last four months. But, you know, and when I was editing the Jerusalem Post, you know, I kind of deluded myself that the print edition was kind of the last word. And you know, the website had much more traffic. But at midnight, you'd close the paper and you'd think, well, OK, we've done, we've done the best we could today and we'll start again tomorrow. So you've got a 24-7 website here with no print edition much of whose readership is in places like where you are, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten hours uh, behind. So just as we're collapsing at the end of the day, people are still, and and by the way, it's not as though the only thing we're covering is news from Israel. We're also covering news that affects the region. We, we cover a great deal of material from around the Jewish world, especially in the last four months, you know, ever more inextricably wound together the the, the consequences of the crisis in Israel, the war in Gaza, its impact on diaspora jury. So there's no downtime. So that's a huge consequence. You you, you can be a site that is not 24-7 and cover Israel, the Middle East, and the Jewish world, but you'll certainly cover it a lot better, especially as an English language site primarily. You'll cover it a lot better if you're 24-7 
because your readers will know that, you know, if the president of the United States says something at four in the morning Israel time, you're not going to miss it for, you know, several more hours. You're going to report it. So in terms of exhaustion, I think it has a great consequence in terms of needing lots of really good staff, including people who are capable of, of running the site to a very professional level 24-7. That's a huge consequence. We've already discussed, David, that you've spent most of your career working for traditional or legacy outlets. You've now, however, spent more than a decade working for an online startup that, as we'll discuss, is, is among the world's fastest growing news sites. What, in your judgment, are the key differences? What part of your old experience has applied to your current work? And what parts are, are new and different? You know, part of your question relates to the, the challenge of journalism in the internet age, right? And that's, it's a difference, both because of the era between print and online, but even today, print is, is somewhat immune from the most acute aspect of that challenge, by which I mean, the faster you do stuff, the less accurate you can be, and the slower you are to cover things, the less relevant you can be, right? So there's a, there's a near impossible contradiction online. With a print edition, you know, at some stage every evening, you're every night you're closing your paper. You know, I assume there are, I, I don't know if the New York Times still does, you know, separate editions during the night. For all I know, it does. But most papers are doing one daily edition and they do their best. And if the, you know, if they haven't got, I mean, they, by definition, people do not expect them to have something uh, that moved in the seven hours, shall we say, or five hours between the paper closing and, and them reading it. It's a different expectation. And it's a different emphasis that journalists place. You want you want your your articles to be beautifully edited, completely accurate, also not possible, but to the best degree that you can with a single deadline every day. Whereas when you're running any kind of internet uh, publication, and certainly if you're twenty four seven, you you also want to be up to date. And by the way, the more up to date you are, again, as I'm saying, you know, the the more likely you're going to uh, make mistakes. We're in the middle now, as I'm speaking to you now. And has been, as has been the case for an awful lot of the last four months, great confusion and inclarity, if that's a word, uh, about central developments right now. So uh, Sunday, a week ago, there was a meeting in Paris of um, Israeli, American, Qatari and Egyptian officials, security chiefs who hammered out some kind of framework proposal for what could turn into uh, some kind of deal with Hamas for another hopefully a, a, a final, because all hostages would be released, but another truce, uh, which would have involved uh, a, a halt in the fighting, the release of hostages, doubtless Hamas demands for the release of Palestinian security prisoners, etc., etc. Now, we've never seen the framework document that was uh, uh, reached on Sunday of a week ago, and apparently, as far as we know, accepted in principle by Israel, that day or the next day, and then conveyed by Qatar to Hamas. There have been, you know, at least five or six versions of the key proposals that I've seen. I don't know for certain which, if any of them, are accurate. And now, um, in the last few hours, or, you know, overnight and through today, there has been material emerging about the ostensible Hamas response. But that's not definitive either. There's even a question of whether what what we think might be the Hamas response is in fact the Hamas response. <laughs> we there are comments that are being made by Hamas officials that are not the response, but that are accompanying the response. You get the idea. You know, a great deal of confusion. So 
you know, I think, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, you're running a, a print edition, you do your best to try and put one story together that told people what you thought you knew. Um, a 24-7 website where this is completely central. I mean, the, the entire state of Israel, of course, is obsessed uh, uh, with every potential twist and turn. The Israeli army is deployed in Gaza. There are hostages and their families who are living a, a sort of ongoing nightmare. There's endless controversy about the, the war that is being fought in Gaza, totally contradictory perspectives of what is going on there and who is to blame for it. A whole colossal international dimension, a major American dimension. Tony Blinken is here at the moment, the Secretary of State. Looming elections in the United States with pressure on Joe Biden, who's been broadly speaking very supportive of Israel, even though he has a, shall we say, extremely fraught relationship uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in in that environment, I, I mean, we could look back, which we we do try to do, and see where we've got stuff wrong, and so on. There is no doubt that in our live blog, right, we're doing we're doing some coverage live. By definition, there are things at four o'clock that you thought were true that may have been, by the way, may have been true at four o'clock, but are no longer true at 4.30 and so on. So it's it's a totally different world. There are different expectations from readers. There are different ways that you have to and should signal to readers, hey, this is a live blog, for example. By definition, that's something that we know this minute that may turn out to be different five minutes from now, whereas you should still be hopefully doing a, a polished, proper story at some stage in the day. But it's endless strain and complexity as you try to, to enable your readers to understand, uh, to make sure that you're telling the latest stuff. I could go on about this for a long time, Sean, so feel free to stop me, because th there's another area you can turn to, which is when you see material being published elsewhere that you know is wrong yes. in the internet era. Do you ignore it? And then your readers are saying, well, why didn't the Times of Israel report that lots of Iranians were killed in Syria the other day? Well, we didn't report it because it was based on a single story in a not entirely credible website. And therefore, we weren't sure that it was true. Well, so maybe we should have told your readers that, hey, this is, there's this report that's being really widely covered. Et you get the idea? So it's, it's very, very complicated. A lot of our conversations during this series have come to highlight polarization in the media and the rise of ideological outlets. Uh, David, I don't necessarily say that in pejorative terms. It's it's just a reality of the modern marketplace. The Times of Israel, by contrast, seems to have leaned against that trend. You've earned a reputation for being straight up in your reporting and balanced in your opinion commentary. Your editorial board includes former Canadian parliamentarian Erwin Kotler. Listeners will know is a bit hard to square politically. Talk about how you've resisted the temptation to essentially affirm the ideological dispositions of one side or the other and manage to turn it into a successful business model. Okay, so first is a very generously worded question, and I appreciate it. And I'm not sure that we're perfect. In fact, I'm certain we are not perfect. But we do strive in our reporting to be fair-minded, right? And not, I mean, I don't, I don't know the politics of many of my reporters, and I don't want to know the politics of any of uh, any of them from their writing. And there are lots of gray areas there. You know, when does, it, when does a, an analysis piece become an op-ed? And we, we try to be careful and we try to, I mean, we take those things seriously. Again, we don't always get every judgment right, but we try to distinguish between reporting that, that does not come with a partisan agenda and analysis that also doesn't, and opinion pieces and, and blog posts and so on. 
obviously, you know, I'm I have political opinions and it, it would be hypocritical and disingenuous and frankly ridiculous to pretend that I don't. When I write op-eds, they're clearly marked as op-eds. And I think, I mean, I have no doubt. <laughs> Let me put it like this. We get criticism from the left and right of Israeli politics, the international take, right? And left and right in Israeli politics is not about socioeconomic issues. More, uh, more, It's more about attitudes to the Arab world, territory for peace, two-state solution, trusting Palestinians, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's, it's, uh, it's all around the sort of key, huge life and death national issues. So we get it from both sides. You know, we're told that we're very right wing. We're told that we're very left wing. And, and all I can say about that is it's kind of a necessary but not sufficient condition. In other words, if we only got it from one side, I'd know we're doing something wrong. But the fact that we get it from both sides doesn't prove that we're doing something right. But but we try. I don't I, you know, I like the, I like the way you ask the question as well, because I don't think it's it's un, untenable to have ideologically driven journalism. I do tend to think it's a problem when the ideology of a publication drives its news coverage and colors its news coverage. And that's very hard to avoid. I, I, you know, And I'm not saying, even though we're trying not to be ideological in our news coverage, I'm not saying we manage to avoid that either. We do our best and we are not, I mean, the fact is we are not in anybody's partisan pocket. We, we simply are not. We owe no allegiance to any Israeli political party or organization. And our mistakes are our own. When we curate the site, when we prioritize this story over that, when we all the choices that journalists make, what should the headlines say? What is the lead to this story? Should we be giving this voice more prominence? These are mistakes that we make from within the framework of trying to be journalistically smart and try to give the public a fair sense of what's going on. They are not um, skewing of content because of any outside force. That's the case. And that's something that I'm very proud to be able to say. In terms of, of market, I honestly don't think in those terms. I mean, it's incredibly gratifying that lots of people read the site and trust the site. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is because they feel they can trust the site. But if trying to be fair-minded and non-partisan was radically curbing our audience and market share, we wouldn't do it any differently. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. I must say, David, you have a really high quality website. As a user, it has so many dimensions that accentuate the experience, including infinite scroll, a slick mobile site, and loads of content. What has been the process of experimentation and discovery to create such a great site? And why do you think so many legacy news outlets remain stuck in a mindset that isn't doing the same thing as you are online? Okay, again, you're being really nice, and I appreciate it. And, you know, we are very proud of the site. And we are constantly we have some, you know, super people in house and with whom we work who are, you know, I'm again, I'm the driver of some of the things we do, but I'm certainly not the only person 
when we built the site originally, as I, as I mentioned to you, I was not, it was not my sole concept. And if I had instead partnered with a company that didn't offer any criticism, it would have been a less good site from the get-go because there are things you can do on the internet that I would never have dreamed of. And we have, you know, we're not, a, I'm, I'm, I'm probably the oldest, maybe one of the, ver- the near, near, nearly the oldest person on our team. And we have some pretty young people and there are lots of people who make endless suggestions, some of which we we do and some of which we don't. It's evolved. In, in the big picture, you know, we we built an initial site and we did a redesign a few years ago. You know, anyone who's starting out on this road, just be aware that the best moment is before you, you, you know, it's when you're starting, right? When you're not, I mean, that's true, you're, you're, you're laughing, but you're not locked into anything and you have no, you know, vast archives to transfer to a new design or, you know, all kinds of things. The redesign was much more complicated than the original site. It's just, that's just a fact. That's one thing. You didn't ask me for any tips, but I'm telling, telling you anyway. And the other thing is, of course, when you have good people, it's much easier to to have a good business product. Uh, so they've driven that, and we've had you know people with the technical skills to do the work. Again, your question is is much more nicely worded than than any of us here would 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 have put it. You know, we we see stuff that we want to fix. It takes a while to fix it. We un, we unveil new things. They take longer to unveil. They're buggier than we had wished they would be. We hopefully catch most of them uh, before they're unveiled. You know, it's it's complicated, this business that we're in, as again, as you know. But uh, such evolution as there has been, uh, it has been driven by very smart people on the staff and very competent people who help us implement them. Um, as, as we've discussed a, a bit already, David, uh, your web traffic was already pretty high, but it's grown significantly based on your journalism since Hamas terrorist attacks against Israel in October. The Times of Israel is now among the Press Gazette's top 50 news websites in the world. I want to ask about your journalism concerning the attacks and the ensuing conflict. These issues are deeply personal. Many in Israel, including journalists themselves, have been directly affected through the attacks or, of course, the subsequent military mobilization. Talk about doing journalism in such a context. How have you and the team handled those dynamics? Okay, again, these are you know really good questions. I, I have to say, in all fairness, I think we're probably not um, a top 50 English site in the world as of me speaking to you now. We certainly were in October and November, and we grew faster than any English site in the world in October and November year on year. I think we're still in the top 50 in the States in English, which is still pretty remarkable. In a way, I mean, it is it is inevitable. We're, we're ultimately, we're maybe a niche is, is not entirely accurate since I think so much of the world now is so focused on this part of the world. But it's, you know, it covers a very particular rather than a universal area very thoroughly. And therefore, when this part of the world uh, became the dominant news story in the world, our traffic soared. But it soared to a, to a frankly, I mean, unexpected, is to put it mildly, degree. Um, it's not something, um, I don't know, again, if you want to get into this, but Google Analytics, which we rely on a great deal, has gone through a process of change in the last few months. And it was much easier to, to see our traffic a few months ago than it is today. Yes. So I, I certainly didn't know before Similar Web and then Press Gazette in England picked up on the fact that we were, you know, the traffic was soaring so radically. I didn't know about it beforehand. It's not something that we obsess about, but it was very gratifying. Uh, as I said to you before, I kind of wish that it was, you know, for better reasons. 
And traffic has, obviously, people's attention has moved on. It comes back, certainly when there are major developments, but traffic has, has it hasn't gone back to pre-October the 7th levels by any means, but it's certainly not as high as it was in those first um, days and weeks after October the 7th. In terms of, of covering, I mean, this is, a very, this is a very difficult, and in terms of the very differing, shall we say, takes on what is even happening, it's incredibly challenging. And one of the reasons why it's so challenging is because it is not safe for, you know, we we sent, have sent reporters into the West Bank over the years. Of course, we've had reporters who've gone to places where it was potentially quite risky for them to be, including countries where it was quite risky for them to be and had to take sensible precautions and so on. But the fact is that you cannot send um, a journalist as a responsible editor um, into Gaza uh, independently. And I think, I don't, don't know who else, if anybody has spoken to you about this, but I don't think um, US media or Canadian media or, or any really Western media that I know of could say, yeah, we have uh, a reporter that we know is independent and whose integrity we trust, who's an international reporter, who's able to report freely and consistently, sustainably uh, from Gaza. So we're, we're relying on reporters who are, who are taken in with the army every now and again, which, which we, we do have, but they see what the army wants them to see and what they can discern. And then the news agencies. And I, I don't want to, all I can say about news agencies, I don't know how independently their reporters can operate. I don't know how safely their reporters can operate. And, you know, if we, if we think, what did we used to say about in newspapers being the first draft of history? So now we're in an internet era where, you know, 24 seven websites are, a first draft of history, but to some extent, even that instant coverage is, especially in a conflict like this, is driven by news agency alerts coming out of Gaza. And there's, you know, if you look at the major news agencies, you will see material coming out all the time, all the time. And lots of it is unverifiable. You know, there's a huge issue of the, the death toll in Gaza, among Gazans, right? So we know the Israeli army claims that it has killed something like 10,000 uh, Hamas operatives since the ground offensive was launched in the wake of October the 7th, and that 1,000 terrorists were killed inside Israel on, the, on October the 7th. So you have 11,000 people who maybe, uh, if there were honest um, numbers coming out of Gaza, would be presented as what 11,000 Hamas and other terror operatives killed since, on and since October the 7th. What you have coming out of Gaza is, I think the latest number is in, in, in the region of 27,000 people. This is a number offered by the health ministry in Gaza. Well, that's the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, uh, and it's unverifiable, and it's not clear how they come to that number, and it's certainly not clear how they divide within that number. Does that 27,000 include uh, Hamas's people who've been killed, operatives, gunmen who've been killed in Gaza. Presumably it does, but I'm not sure that it says so. Uh, in fact, I don't think it says so. Does it include the people killed in Israel on October the 7th? But you know, Hamas people who were killed as they sought to slaughter and succeeded in slaughtering Israelis? I'm not sure that it does. I think maybe it doesn't. They, they, they sometimes uh, give numbers for, for children. Who do they consider to be children? Does that mean people of 16, 17, 18 and 19 uh, who are more than capable and do, uh, in some cases, take up arms against uh, Israel and so on. 
So even something as ostensibly straightforward as that is very hard to get a sense of. Then you have, you know, from the beginning, you had Hamas claims about the consequences of ostensible Israeli strikes, airstrikes and so on. That's kind of more major stuff. And then particular incidents where it's very, very hard to know. So there was an incident on October the 17th when Hamas claimed that an Israeli bombing had had caused immense fatalities at Gaza's Al-Akhli hospital. And it was a, a claim quite untenably parroted by a great deal of international media, including very well-resourced and, and capable international media. And it was not clear that it was credible. And I think the, the general conclusion, certainly of the United States and of Israel, was that it was not credible, that this had not been caused by an Israeli strike, but rather a, a, a Gaza rocket that had fallen short. So you have major stuff like that that is, that is very hard to tell from the get-go. There was an incident, you know, two, three weeks ago of somebody killed in a car in, in Gaza or three people killed in a car in Gaza with, with a drone. And the, the narrative on that went back and forth, including from official Israeli army and statements. Were they terrorists? Were they Hamas or Islamic Jihad affiliated? Or were they journalists going about their business in an area where it was dangerous for them? You know, at some point, the Israeli army published what it said was the Islamic Jihad membership details of one of the three who had hitherto been presented as a, a working journalist and the son, I think, of the of, of a bureau chief in Gaza. And I, I honestly, hand on my heart, I don't know to this day what the truth of that, of that back and forth claim and counterclaim, including from more and less credible sources. So it's very, very complicated to cover. Listeners will hear, David, the kind of painstaking effort that you and the team put into trying to get to the bottom of a lot of these issues in such a, a difficult context. Uh, I should say that that type of high quality journalism has unfortunately been contrasted with with a lot of what we've seen elsewhere. I, I admit, for instance, that I've been surprised by some international reporting on the conflict, including here in Canada, where I believe that one of our major outlets still has the AP story that you referred to about the hospital bombing on its site. Do you agree that there has been an anti-Israel bias in a lot of the international reporting? And if so, what do you attribute that to? Look, I, I don't follow everything as closely as I would be able to in a non-insanely you know, insanely fast-moving period. And I'm, I'm very wary of, of, of you know, sallying forth in areas where I don't feel that I that I have enough, you know, personal knowledge, right? Where I do feel, and I think this is, it, it's crucial uh, that there's there's been a, a a wide failure in a lot of coverage, is the the rapidity with which October the seventh got eliminated or almost eliminated from reporting on everything that has happened on and since October the 7th. Now, in a, in a perfect world, I suppose I would or, or, I would want every report to start with, um, you know, in 2005, Israel pulled its army and all civilians out of Gaza and withdrew to the pre-1967 lines and has no territorial claims on Gaza and no civilian or military presence in Gaza, because that's the context in which lots of... But I don't expect that. But I think it's reasonable to expect that there is... Um, not again, doesn't need to be paragraphs of it, but enough material, a sentence or two can cover a lot of it uh, to explain 
where the situation came from and the cause and effect. So just, you know, again, every piece doesn't need to say this, but the fact is Israel was so reluctant to re-engage, shall we say, with Gaza, that it insistently refused to believe all the evidence before its eyes of the fact that Hamas was building an army and was preparing to invade, right? It's, it, it's not as though Israel was you know, just waiting, relishing the prospect of being able to send its soldiers, remember, a, a res, largely a reservist army, uh, hundreds of thousands of Israelis called up to fight, was, you know, was just so desperate. For, no, quite the reverse. Israel did not want to believe that having left Gaza, Hamas, rather than seeking to, by the way, you could have conned Israel. If they kept things calm in Gaza, they would have probably prompted Israel to pull out most of the West Bank as well. But Hamas insistently built an army, subverted all resources to hell with the residents of Gaza, some of whom support them and some of whom don't. I can't quantify uh, the proportion there, but geared up to invade and to be able to resist any subsequent Israeli effort to dismantle them and prevent them doing it again. That's you know part of the context here. And unless people remember that, when they invaded the country next door, which has no territorial claims on Gaza, in fact, which relinquished all claims to Gaza, it massacred hundreds of people, 1,200 people, most of them civilians, including in the most, I mean, horrific circumstances with executions and, and burnings of, of, of homes with people in them and rapes and other widely and credibly documented horrific crimes. And Israel, and by the way, and then announced that we'll keep doing it. <laughs> well, there'll be a second and third and a millionth October the 7th, as one of the Hamas leaders said, until Israel is destroyed. So obviously Israel needs to try and prevent that happening. And it's very hard to fight in a Gaza where the terrorist group is also the army and is also the government and thus has no interest in protecting its civilians, quite the reverse, wants to place them in harm's way to make it harder for Israel to get to them. I, again, I don't expect every, every ounce of that context to be in every story, but it's, it seems to me has been very, very untenably, rapidly airbrushed out of the ongoing coverage of the story when it is central to understanding what is happening on an ongoing basis. Well, well, well said, David. Um, how has the Times of Israel mission to reach audiences in the broader Middle East been part of your journalistic efforts over the past four months? Well, you know, the site is, it's there for people and it has been for years. We, I can't say that we've taken particular steps to make sure that more people, you know, can read it in this or that language because we've been producing it in this and that language for, you know, many, many years. And the, the traffic has grown. Uh, again, it's very hard to, quant to, to get a, a genuine handle on traffic, but it has grown in those languages in recent months. You know, one of the issues that we're dealing with, which you didn't you didn't specifically ask, but you know, there's there, there's a um, a great deal of dismay, to put it mildly, in Israel at quite credible opinion polling among uh, among Palestinians about their attitude to October the seventh. And there's a very credible Palestinian pollster uh, whose name is uh, Khalil Shikaki, and he produced a poll that showed. I mean, staggeringly high levels of support in Gaza and even more in the West Bank for what happened on October the 7th and very high mistrust of the truth of what happened. And part of that he posited in a piece that we did where we spoke to him 
was because he said that uh, a lot of mainstream media and other people have said the same thing. A lot of mainstream Arabic media hasn't really reported uh, what happened on October the 7th with any consistent prominence or even accurate detail in, in, in some cases. So hopefully the fact that we do report it means that people who want to in this part of the world, I mean, we're not the only people. There's a lot of Arabic social media. It's all there if people want to see it. Apparently lots of people don't want to see it and have their judgment swayed by an encounter with the facts. But uh, they're out there. We're one of the people who've, who've put it out there. David, you've been so generous with your time. I, I just have a couple of final questions based on your career and experience and, and the insights that, it, that they may provide about where the news media industry itself is headed. Uh, as we've discussed, you personify in a way some of the big changes in journalism, having worked in uh, traditional media and now been at the forefront of the rise of online media. I think proponents of the legacy media in Canada might argue that the Times of Israel is an outlier and that most online outlets aren't big enough to replace declining traditional newspapers. And so that as the industry is faltering, governments might need to step in and help or, or risk creating a huge void in news and information. Uh, how would you respond to those arguments? Do they resonate with you at all? Well, there's two things I'd say. First of all, if your audience is is physically fairly near to where you are reporting, then print media is, is more viable than it has been for us. So we, I don't know if we're an outlier, but we are a particular case in that we're covering, you know, everything in and around country A with most of our audience in the, in the English speaking world, not economically viable to reach with a print edition. The second thing when you, I don't know, I don't know how significant the suggestion of sort of government intervention, I mean, government's uh, support I think that's not a good idea. <laughs> I think um, journalism is meant to be uh, independent of government, and it's just asking for trouble to have any kind of government role. But the mechanics and the finances of journalism are certainly problematic. And uh, it is, you know, there are there are newspapers with the clout and the resources, but very few that with a, with um, paywalls or or if, if not hermetic paywalls, then encouraging as we do and The Guardian does, for example, of encouraging people to help support the journalism without closing it off. I mean, the, there is that does offer some potential, but it's it's a huge challenge. And one of the, I mean, the only other area of, of wisdom that I have where I don't have particular wisdom is one of the reasons why journalism has is struggling economically is because of social media giants who are profiting from reporters hard work and are not really paying for it in any way so again i don't have the formula and i'm sure there are other people you can or, or have spoken to who would give you really sensible approaches but if you have companies that are making billions and part of the reason why they're so resonant is because they are the intermediary between a, a reader looking for something and the people producing it and they don't have to go beyond the intermediary because that's the way these social media platforms or search engines are set up then they should be paying and they should be contributing towards the financing of the journalism that they're benefiting from. So, you know, I, I, I think that needs to be a way forward. How can it be that a social media platform or a search engine is, is it seems to me, also polishing and amending uh, the way it's, it works to keep people on their intermediate platform rather than send readers to the original sources? That seems to me to be wrong and unfair, and there should be a financial benefit to the 
originators of the material provided by the people who are profiting from it. Do you see, David, in the Times of Israel and other online outlets, a market-supported future for journalism? It's very hard. And um, it's not. It's by no means clear to me that, I mean, we can see it. You, if you've watched the industry, you've seen, you've seen titles decline and, and, and collapse and, and a minority who are, who are doing fairly well and you know, lots of people somewhere in, in between. Uh, so you can see the market thinning out. You can see the dangers of ownership that has other interests acquiring media for purposes that are not central to independent journalism. And I believe in, in independent journalism. I think it's really important in democracies that there is independent media that can make sure that people who are supposed to be running our countries are held to account. Uh, I think it's extremely important in non-democracies to try to help encourage processes towards accountability of leaders and honesty and the elimination of corruption and so on. So it's, I think it's a, it's a very disturbing landscape of the last you know, many, many years. And I don't think anybody has found a magic formula. I suspect, you know, for some outlets, part of that formula is either it's a paywall and a product that people gradually realize that it's worth paying for, or some kind of, we, we have something called Times Digital Community, encouraging people to help finance the journalism. But it's, you know, if you do original journalism, the more original journalism you do, and the, 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 if you treat your staff and give them fair terms and conditions, it's a struggle. And it's, I'm sure it's a struggle everywhere, almost everywhere in this industry. Final question. In light of all of those challenges, are you ultimately optimistic or pessimistic about the future of news? Well, that's a bad question to ask me because I'm sort of pessimistic about humanity generally. <laughs> um, we seem to be sort of, you know, hurtling off a cliff. I, I don't have any, you know, what, you know, I'll bring it back to October the 7th, right? October the 7th was such a unthinkable, unfathomable failure of conception and assessment uh, on the part of the Israeli political leadership, and maybe even more so on the, on the part of the Israeli military leadership. And I'm somebody who, who tries to be wary about, you know, pondering ahead. But since October the 7th, even more so, you know, I, I barely know what happened half an hour ago. I have no idea what's going to happen half an hour from now. So in the context of, you know, the future of journalism, I think there are people who still take this profession seriously. I think it's really an uphill battle. I hope the the forces of of independence and integrity uh, prevail because I think it's you know pretty central to democratic processes and people's rights and and you know the issues that journalism is meant to help um, police and make people aware of. Well, police is the wrong word, but bring to the public's attention to enable the public to make the choices they need to make to give themselves a better future. So that was very long-winded. I hope, I hope the, the, the good will prevail, the good and the independence. Well, if people are in, in search of independence and integrity, they ought to check out the Times of Israel newspaper's founding editor, David Horvitz. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Hub Dialogues featuring content for our Future of News series. For more on the series, go to our website, www.thehub.ca. This podcast was made possible thanks to the generous and ongoing support of the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. 
Meta is a contributor to the Hub's Future of News series. We thank them for their ongoing support. Today's program host was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. The Hub Dialogues are produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.